happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for Friday, November the 24th, 2017. And this is Wes Fryer coming to you tonight from Liberty, Missouri, a suburb of Kansas City, um, enjoying the Google Fiber connection of my sister and her family who've, I don't know, had this for about five years and a crazy 170 megs up and down, which will set a record. So if my bandwidth is bad tonight, you know, I don't know what to say, but um, I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School, normally uh, tuning in uh, with Jason here on Wednesday nights, but because of our Thanksgiving holiday here in North America in the United States, we have postponed until tonight. So Jason, how are things up in the great white North, at least as far as the United States is great white North goes? <laughs> They're going quite well, and good evening, good morning, good afternoon to anyone that might be tuning this via podcasting. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual supplemental program located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. I'm also the NCCE Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence uh, for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. And, um, yeah, we're celebrating uh, an interesting weather pattern here in Montana, as usual. And I think Wes has, has both been in Montana enough and listened to me talk about weather enough. Yesterday, it was 71 degrees where we were at in Highwood, Montana, where my in-laws um, have a cabin. And we were both delighted by the weather and a little terrified because there have been times when we've been there for Thanksgiving and it was well below zero um, uh, uh, in that area. So we're like half thankful for the delightful weather. And I was also able to travel there and back without any weather related delays. So um, today's not just Friday. It happens to be Black Friday, which is something interesting because I'm usually not on the grid um, during Black Friday because my in-laws place is off the grid and nowhere near any sort of internet signal. Um, I guess, Wes, did you get up at 3 a.m. this morning and go stand in line somewhere to pick up a mad crazy deal? No, definitely not. We we had a few folks in our uh, our extended household here that that did go out uh, about eleven eleven thirty and stood in a few lines, but that has not been uh, something that's been a big temptation for me. So, yep, same here as well. And in fact, um, uh, it was something that I'll I'll get to in our geeks of the week. But uh, of course, Monday is Cyber Monday, which is a place where there's a lot of interesting online deals. And if you are in the in the market for a new television, for a new device like an Amazon Echo or a Kindle, which is something else we'll be talking about tonight, that's a good day to do it too. But of course. Um, you know, you don't have to stand in lines or get up at 3 a.m. or go to a store at 11 o'clock the night before in order to get the good deals. So, um, yeah, uh, it's strange how this weekend of thankfulness has turned into a, a crass consumerist exercise. But hopefully you were not up in the early a.m., uh, dear listeners, to try to find yourself a good deal on a 4K television. That's right. And uh, welcome to Peggy George, who's joining us live in our chat room. And we want to encourage anybody who might be joining us live to definitely check out the live chat that we have there and encourage you to ask questions and interact. And we will try our best to give voice to your comments or questions. And I am um, doing my my multi, you know, one one uh, one screen display. But my habit now is to have the hangout here on the side and then have a separate window with, with the pop-out chat over there. So uh, I will comment that I am enjoying my my Android phone, thanks to Jason's recommendation. I'm the proud owner of a Motorola E4 Plus 32-gig uh, phone, and uh, 
took that to Egypt and successfully, I guess, you know, nav- navigated the intricacies of uh, getting transitioned over from iOS to Android with only a few few little blips in terms of things that didn't work, but um, really, and I guess I'll, I, I don't want to go into my geek of the week, but it, it's amazing, man. It's amazing internationally. Also with T-Mobile, you know, Jason and I have a periodic love fest for T-Mobile that we'll talk about. And T-Mobile's international coverage is just fantastic, right? I had unlimited data and texting and uh, did not, you know, use voice calling and it was, it was just superb. So I was actually able to video chat my wife and youngest daughter from the pyramids at Giza, it, you know, and because there was LTE internet there. And so it was 4 p.m. Egypt time. It was 8 a.m. Uh, Central time. And that, that takes the cake as the coolest video conference in the history of the Fryer family. So thank, thank you, March of Technology, because that's not just one technology, but multiple things, you know, making that making that possible. So Jason, do you want to let our our new time viewers know what we do here on the EdTech Situation Room? Sure. Well, we're usually a Wednesday night podcast, although again, a special edition for Thanksgiving weekend. But we like to take a look at technology news from across the, the spectrum and take a look at it from an educational lens. And one of the things that we've noticed in our almost two years of doing this now, um, upcoming in January, will be our two year anniversary of, of our podcast, is that uh, technology does have both an interesting discussion element to it, both from an interpersonal standpoint. So if you are a technology enthusiast like we are, or you're just an end user like just about everyone else um, in in the United States and around the world, then obviously this news impacts you. We also like to take a look at what might be the impact in the classroom. We are both classroom teachers by trade. We both have administrative jobs now that involve technology in some way, shape, or form, but we still um, have a lot of of thoughts about where this applies to the day-to-day classroom teacher and how this technology might wiggle into the back of your classroom. And so with that in mind, Wes, where shall we start this week? I noticed that we're almost at two pages of links, which may be a record for us, but that's what happens when you take a couple weeks off and a lot of news happens. Well, I suppose uh, let's let's take a look at some of the – um, well, let's talk about the Mac first, actually. Sure, um, yeah. I'm going to start with security. But um, there was a, uh, a really good article about MacBooks from CNET that was from um, actually October 27th. And by the way, if anybody would like to check these links out, you can go to edtechsr.com slash links, and you can uh, link to um, link, link to uh, all of the resources that we talk about as well as uh, those that we may not. Um, there was this article, and then there was also another one, I think it was from Wired, and maybe I didn't get that one on there, um, talking about, you know, the MacBook Pro, the touchpad, um, you know, why it, why it took so long. The CNET article is called, Does the Mac Still Matter? Um, and so um, this was, uh, you know, a bunch of, of interviews. Yeah, no, this is the one. This is it. Um Talk, we've, we've talked about this on the show before as far as the bet that Apple is taking that we don't want to combine, you know, this tablet with this laptop. And I think the most interesting thing in this was, you know, Johnny Ive saying he couldn't say a lot more, but that the, the touch bar, which is what Apple calls their addition to the MacBook Pro added in 2017, you know, is a forecast of things to come. And I guess that's just, that's really a, a teaser. We've, we've talked about how a number of pro users 
you know, the Mac, Mac platform has lost those users. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing numbers fluctuate as far as iPhone. At the time that, that Steve Jobs announced the iPhone in 2007, the iPod and iTunes accounted for over half of Apple's revenue. Today, according to the CNET article, you know, the Mac only accounts for about 10%, but Apple is getting an increasing piece of a, of a shrinking pie because just like, you know, Jobs forecast, I think, in 2010 with the iPad, this post-PC era, you know, we were, were in that era. And certainly over the Thanksgiving holiday, I mean, I was reading that on my iPad, you know, re- reflecting about, you know, being able to flip through this with my thumbs and, and, and things like that. So um, I guess this is, a, this is a continuing question for us as consumers. But as far as the classroom, Jason, what, what are your thoughts as we, you know, get close to to uh, finishing out 2017, do you think the the post PC world has a big impact on on classrooms today, or are we still as keyboard and, and sort of word processing traditional focus that we're, we're still not at a point where schools need to be worried about a post PC one to one world? Well, I, I think there's a couple of different angles here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, you know, it's it's popular for people to talk about the, the death of Apple, and that's been going on for, well, let's be honest, 25 years, right? It's not a new phenomenon for us to talk about that Apple's dying, they're losing their mojo, and yada, yada, yada. And in the last couple of weeks, I've noticed, uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts and read some articles that all have kind of interesting views on this. Uh, this Last week's What the Tech podcast, which is um, a, a decent podcast that I like to listen to that has some chat around usually a fairly balanced look at both Microsoft and Apple products was talking about how the 2016 MacBook Pro was by all accounts a disaster because of a driver problem. Of course, I know three people with that device have never had any issues with that, but there was a lot of hand-wringing about that. Um, interestingly enough, two weeks ago, and I've been trying to find this article for the last hour and a half, and I know I read it, so I'm not making this up, but the Apple Watch has more sales in 2017 than the iPod had during its biggest year. Um, and you may remember the iPod is what put Apple on the map for consumer devices and led directly to the development of the iPhone. So that's interesting to me as well. Um, and then also that there's another series of articles I'd like to talk about in a moment that talk about that maybe it's time for us to admit that the, the desktop operating system, Mac OS, which runs the Mac desktop, the Mac laptop, is likely to go away in favor of the iOS operating system that runs iPads and phones. And I think there's a lot of swirling information around this for exactly what you suggest, Wes, that there is a a question mark of what we should be investing in um, in classrooms. Is it a desktop operating system that is extremely functional uh, but comes with a price limitation? The hardware that runs those operating systems is oftentimes twice or three times the price of a piece of hardware that runs the lower-end mobile operating systems. At the same time, I've, I've talked to uh, one directly, one indirectly, two tech directors that within the last three years have gotten rid of all their iPads, one in favor of Chromebooks and the other in favor of Microsoft laptops because their teachers said they felt as though that their students were more functional and there was more classroom use for the keyboard-based devices 
than there were for the mobile devices. And so I, I think it's an interesting time to be in tech, but I will say this, that if you do invest in a laptop or desktop-based operating system, make sure the hardware is going to last the time of the investment. I think that's one of the most critical decisions you want to ask yourself before you invest in, in any hardware platform. And I'll give you a primary example of that. Um, I have a really good example of a, of a dying, excellent laptop. This was this is a Chromebook Pixel. This is the 2000 2013 Chromebook Pixel, uh, which is the first high-end uh, Chromebook that was released. Um, it was released by Google and then kind of inspired some other high-end ones. And I, I, I trade now in Chromebooks a lot, so I've got other examples that, that are available to me that do things. This Chromebook uh, is really excellent high-end hardware, but Google will stop supporting this in spring of 2018 as a five-year shelf life based on the updates that are being done to the device. Um, if someone's trying to sell you high-end hardware that you either know for a fact is not going to be supported or has some sort of artificial shelf life to it, that is a lousy thing to invest in as a classroom uh, a classroom technology. Whereas a lot of iPads, going back to the iPad 2, which is the second generation of iPads, it would be a 2011 release, the iPad 2 is still being largely supported by modern versions of, of the, the iOS, which means you have a longer shelf life with that, right? And so I think there's a lot of factors here that all play into those pieces. Um, you know, Wes, you probably would disagree with me, and in fact, I hope you do, because I think it, it helps the spirit of debate here, is that, you know, the bottom line is, is that while you can bring in an iPad, a tablet, a phone in the classroom, it does have a limited capability for creation, in my mind, in comparison to a larger screen, keyboard hooked up, um, a, a laptop or desktop computer. And so, again, it goes back to balancing all those factors, what you want your students to do with them, what is important to you, um, what you're set up to manage. There's just a lot of factors in that process. Sure. I mean, it's definitely definitely the case that, um, you know, mobile devices have limited utility relative to full-blown laptop, but yes. they also have different different functionality and as we probably said before on the show, you know, we're living in a multi-device world. We're not just in a one-to-one computing environment. And so I think it, it behooves us as educators and as leaders to look at ways that we can, you know, leverage the affordances of different platforms and leave that door open to be able to use mobile devices, i.e. shooting video, shooting photos, you know, on a mobile phone, you know, using tablets to be able to create things, perhaps like green screen video or other things that may not, you know, be quite as easy to do. But those lines are definitely blurring and, you know, the ability to create content on multiple platforms, just the bar continues to, I guess the bar continues to go down. Uh, the possibilities continue to increase. I will kind of tag on to that. We're having this discussion right now about iPad 2s. Like, is it time to retire those at school? You know, we've had a few Bluetooth devices and a few things that, you know, wouldn't work. In general, I think what we're probably going to see is just moving them into areas that, that have lower requirements, right? Like our maintenance department at our school um, went ahead and started to use iPads and tablets and, you know, their app is really just a web app, uh, just just to open up tickets and, you know, check email and calendar and, and really basic things like that. So they're not connecting to Bluetooth devices. They're not having to, you know, support any kind of advanced protocols. Um, so I don't think the day is here yet where at school we need to say no, no you know, no um, iPad 2s at all. Um, I will say that 
we've we've had we've taken a look at using donated iPhones for Google Expeditions, and mm-hmm. so I've had the opportunity in the last couple of weeks to learn that iOS eight is not supported on iPhone four and earlier models, and that is required for Google Expeditions. So when it comes to iPhones, you know, and whether they're going to donate those. Um, depending upon your purpose and what kinds of apps, you know, we, we do see the shelf life of these devices. It's not like, you know, keep them forever. Uh, but we're also, you know, in a place with, uh, for instance, 2012 MacBooks, which are five years old now, right? You know, having, having a, a really extended shelf life, especially with a solid state drive. And so we probably are going to end up selling really before the end of the year, um, some of those back to, uh, either Apple or to some other manufacturers that we've got some you know, quotes for. And depending upon the, the uh, condition of those, I mean, we may be able to get as much as 300 or $400 for, for these devices. And that's pretty yep. astounding, you know, as far as an, an investment return. I don't, I'd be really surprised if we got $400. But um, yeah, all of these issues play into it. And, and I think that uh, as we look at, at laptops and function, um, part of our calculation definitely needs to be security, and it also needs to be the degree to which, you know, the technology department as it is, whatever that looks like in your context, you know, is able to securely and efficiently support devices. Uh, and so we're, I know we're going to talk about some security articles here tonight, as we usually do, and, you know, that that is more a part of the conversation or needs to be more a part of the conversation, I would argue, today than it ever has been because right. the landscape is so much more hostile. So let me ask this, Wes. The other two articles I threw in, and let's toss this around for a moment, is about the notion of kind of an iOS laptop. And the the, the great article um, is from Jason Snell from Macworld that talks about how, you know, Apple should release something that is a laptop form factor with the iOS uh, base to it. And at the same time, um, and I was trying to find the source article for this. I've seen some references to it, but uh, Apple's released a an interesting advertisement called What's a Computer? And apparently that's an answer back to um, uh, Microsoft CEO uh, Sanjay Nadella's. Uh, apparently he walked into a coffee shop or a school or something and walked up into a uh, just to an iPad user, someone who probably had a fancy keyboard and was utilizing it as a laptop and, 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 and basically said, you know, why don't you have a computer for this task sort of thing? And, you know, actually Apple and Microsoft have been pretty buddy-buddy for the last uh, uh, a couple of years since Mr. Nadella took over as CEO. They've been much more friendly to the Apple platform. And, in fact, my understanding is you can spot iPads and iPhones all around the Seattle or, or the Redmond, Washington campuses of Microsoft now because it's, it's kind of a new area. Era of, of embracing all platforms, including the Apple platforms. But the notion of a 10-inch, 12-inch, maybe even a 13 or 14-inch uh, uh, sort of tablet that has a high-end keyboard, maybe with an additional battery in it, could be a very interesting phenomenon. So, Wes, I know I could get away with about 90% of my job on a Chromebook, which is currently my um, mobile OS device, right? So could you get away with 90% of your job with just the iPad? Definitely. In fact, uh, Egypt was a good test case for that because largely motivated by issues of privacy and data protection, which, you know, some of the articles we've got in the show notes talk about 
this in terms of data protection instead of just saying privacy. Um, I went to Egypt with an Android phone and a, a Dell 11-inch Chromebook. And so I was able to do everything that I wanted to do except when I wanted to do a podcast. For some reason, um, the 65-meg file that I was trying to import was just giving me some trouble uh, when I was trying to use some of the different web-based platforms for that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was very, very pleased with it. And I'm certainly on the web for, you know, gosh, I would, I think it's over 90% of my day. I mean, it's, it's a little bit rare that I'm, I'm doing something else, uh, that, that I can't, that I can't do. And, and, and a lot of that actually is being done on an iPad now, you know, not, I haven't had a MacBook Pro for, a, for quite a while. So. Yeah, I think that's a real interesting analysis. In fact, it would be an interesting tool. I don't know if there's something that we could, you know, deploy in, in not a creepy way, because that, that's the thing that's interesting with all this, right? There's a line between, hey, that's really cool. That helps me. Uh, and wow, that's really creepy. I'm scared. And wow, our, our, you know, our democracy just got subverted. Holy cow. Um, you know, somewhere along the line there, just even to know teachers at school and staff, like what percentage of your day are you spending inside a web browser versus, you know, inside something else. As we refreshed our laptops for our elementary teachers in, uh, last year and, and our middle school teachers this year, you know, we had <clears throat> some pretty important discussions about what that platform might look like and whether we wanted to just stick with with largely a Mac platform or whether we wanted to look at something else that could involve Chrome or whatever. We ended up, you know, sticking with a MacBook Air but my suspicion is that most of us are living in a web-based world and, and we could get by, you know, quite easily with, with Chrome. So sure. where would you like to, to take us next, Jason? Well, um, I think we should probably jump in and talk uh, net neutrality for a couple minutes because of, of the timing of the issue. So um, there have been a variety of articles. I think we cite four or five today to say that the FCC, UFCC chair, um, it for sure has a plan now to dismantle net neutrality. And um, we've talked about this uh, probably a half dozen times already on the podcast, but the, you know, the, the 10 second net neutrality argument is net neutrality says that every single byte is exactly equal, which means when it travels from point A to point B, no matter what the byte is, no matter who A is, no matter who B is, there's no impediment, there's no advantaging or disadvantaging of that traffic back and forth. That, that concept is known as net neutrality. And so now there is a, a, a plan uh, in front of the FCC in which they will disband net neutrality and allow providers, internet service providers, to advantage some content over others, usually in some sort of charging scheme. And the way a lot of advocates against uh, uh, messing with net neutrality state it is that they think of it in terms of your cable provider charging you money to get a fast lane for certain types of content in addition to your regular internet access. So imagine for a moment that your internet access stagnates at a certain speed, but that you can pay 10 more dollars a month to get unlimited fast internet for your social media or $25 a month for unlimited fast internet for your music or your video streaming. And we have talked about this uh, a lot on, on the podcast. Um, I know that I have once again reached out, both made comments to the FCC before the comment um, uh, uh, time closed. I've now reached out to all three members of, of, of Congress 
up from my part of Montana to let them know that this is something I am strongly, strongly, strongly against. And I think personally that schools will be very much negatively impacted by this, both because schools, I think, would have to pay additional money to get access to fast lanes for things I think are important for schools, including things like streaming video. But more importantly, I think a lot of educational services, and I want to talk about my own for a moment. Um, I help run a state virtual supplemental program that provides supplemental classes to students across the state of Montana. This semester, over 200 schools utilize my program. And I can't imagine a scenario where either my program or our end users would be able to budget additional funds just to make the internet palatable to be able to receive media or send media back and forth from both sides. So, Wes, um, I, I, I don't think you've changed your net neutrality position as of late. No, but def- definitely not. And I think we're on, on the same page there. And, and this is one of the topics that we've discussed, which, you know, kind of like privacy, it might be hard to help people understand the importance of. There's lingo, there's technical jargon, but it is an, it's an essential part of the internet. And I think that, and we might talk about this a little bit later in the show as well, We've had some really important discussion on Capitol Hill in the United States and, and on lots of articles, you know, written about the potentially potential need for regulation and looking at data protection and, and data visibility and right to data and and the, uh, you know, the, the fact that there's all these algorithms and all this data, you know, flying around that we're not able to see and, and that there may be a role for government. But, you know, to sell out, I mean, let's. Let's hope that we can rise up as a people and let our voices be heard because there's some just absolutely ridiculous, you know, legislation being proposed now that's going to put millions of people off of medical um, insurance and medical coverage, you know, that's going to, you know, it, decrease taxes for some of the wealthiest in our country. And, and you know, there's going to be a sellout to corporations that are wanting these Internet fast lanes. And what's sad Congress really needs to act in this because the way everything is set up right now in the United States, it is the FCC, which is a bunch of appointed officials that are not elected, which are allowed to make this kind of a call, right? And so something which goes to the heart of the Internet and how it functions and how it is regulated or not regulated really shouldn't be the call of some appointed officials. That's like you know, letting some people at the State Department who who got appointed, you know, decide, you know, some huge you know, trade issues or, or, you know, something that's going to impact everybody, you know, maybe something that involves taxation or I don't know what, it'd just be really weird to do that, right? You'd say, no, this is something that, that Congress, that our, our elected officials need to do. So whatever the FCC does, I hope that, you know, we're going to eventually see congressional action on. And, and I think what, what we saw President Obama do when the uh, FCC chairman ruled that Internet was, and I just have to make sure I get all my terms right, uh, that it was a Title II, it, was a, it fell under Title II. You know, it, it, it was basically an appointed official's decision that put it on, in, into that category, you know, reg, regulating uh, Internet and, and saying it was subject to regulation in the same way that, that dial tone and traditional phone service was. And so we, we've had, you know, a past administration, now the current administration, you know, taking action on this, you know, via the FCC. And what, what ultimately needs to happen, I think, is Congress needs to, needs to take some steps. So I will 
pardon me, say that I have not contacted my uh, duly elected representatives and certainly need to do so. And it's really important because I think December 14th is the day they're looking at taking action on this. And we've had these different campaigns where the Internet, you know, kind of rises up and people speak out. And, and that's the same thing that we need to do here uh, because we are talking about uh, some important changes that they could have dramatic impacts upon all of us, not only as consumers, but, you know, as, as schools and, and, you know, as a nation, I mean, this, this impacts our democracy. This, this impacts a whole lot in terms of who, whose voices are amplified and whose are not and, and the equality with which packets are treated. Yep. Absolutely. So get your voice involved. And then speaking of that notion, there is another really great article um, that's part of our, our, our show notes this week. Again, for those of you new to the podcast, uh, edtechsr.com, you can see all the links. And this week, we won't even get to a third of them based on the amount of things we're sharing. But uh, CNET reported today that, that net neutrality could bring on a big political movement of um, people under the age of 30. And the idea is, is that once you start messing with the internet, which is a given, for pretty much anyone under the age of 40 as being a necessary part of communication in the United States. And if that's the case, the idea here is that uh, a younger political voices that may or may not be engaged already in the political process might jump in to get involved to say that we need to kind of strike back to keep the Internet as equal as possible. Um, and I think both Wes and I would agree with the notion that, you know, obviously the open Internet has led to some issues, right? We'll probably get to the other stuff related to social media and democracy, but that's better than no, or that, that an open Internet that, that inspires new ways of people to communicate and connect is always better than no internet at all or an internet that's so locked down by corporate or commercial interests that you can't really engage with someone one-to-one -one without going through kind of a rigmarole to make sure you both have the right speed of internet service to make that happen and so a free and open internet really does need to be the core of what we do and i think that that's certainly true when we're talking about the educational realm so very interesting i think to see both how it's going to impact um uh obviously schools if should we go in that direction but more importantly what the response will be of those in regards to political action. Well, I'd like to take us uh, to a, a category. And if you're looking at our show notes for episode 74, we, we kind of organize these on the Google Doc uh, a little bit differently than they end up on the show notes. On the show notes on the on the website at TechSR, they're basically chronological or usually approximately for how we talked about them. So the first uh, heading we've got here is hacking and security. And so um, – I'll mention just a couple, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll kind of see what we want to say about these. But there's, there's some really big news here. Um, uh, Bleeping Computer on November 9th, uh, talked about WikiLeaks releasing the source code of the CIA's cyber weapon. So, you know, unlike the Snowden, um, uh, announcements that were talking about, you know, classified programs and things that were in existence and led to some substantial changes in terms of, you know, the U.S. government, um, uh, you know, admitting and, and, and facing up to some of the things that it was doing post 9-11 and, and, and some policies changing. Um, uh, you know, this is actually the release of the code, which has, which has led to some really disastrous uh, ransomware attacks um, against all kinds of organizations to include schools. We've talked about this on the show and, um, you know, really <laughs> as you read this stuff and, you know, there's, there's conspiracy theory and fake news and there's all kinds of things to try to sort out. But, you know, some of this, I really do believe, um, originates with, with Russia and their desire to harm the United States as well as other entities that want to hurt the United States. And so it really is unfortunate, um, 
I guess, for multiple dynamics. Number one, that these these kinds of cyber weapons and these vulnerabilities exist. Number two, um, the issue that the NSA and other intelligence agencies have hoarded these kinds of vulnerabilities and systems. And rather than reporting them to the tech companies to be patched, you know, they've held them back so that they could use them to exploit, you know, for, for spying and intelligence. Um, so, um, these are great topics, by the way, for your kids to write about and to talk about. I mean, talk about current issues, right? You know, we've, we've talked about encryption and that kind of issue, but, you know, should intelligence agencies be able to hoard vulnerabilities for their own, you know, security forces? You know, that, I don't know, that, that may be something that's going to be beyond the, the knowledge basis of, of, or comfort level of, of many teachers to talk about, but I think that would just be a wonderful thing for kids to be debating and discussing uh, and understanding because it's, it's, it's so current. Um, the article under that from Silicon Angle also on November 9th says, uh, WikiLeaks release reveals CIA impersonated Kaspersky lab while hacking people. Now, again, what is true and what is not? What they're insinuating here is that Kaspersky has had its name drugged through the mud and, and, Interestingly, that is, we, we've, we've got a five-year contract with Kaspersky at school for their antivirus and anti-malware solution. Uh, so it's, it's been an interesting thing for us to track because we're like, you know, the U.S. government said don't use Kaspersky, you know, for, for federal agencies. Should we, should we quit using it? You know, this is saying that the CIA actually pretended to be Kaspersky and used code that made it look like it was Kaspersky, you know, when they were doing hacks and things like that. And so... Uh, the ethical angles of, of this are, you know, pretty, pretty, um, I don't know, hazy. Um, and there are decisions to be made about this. And I just don't know. We, we're not hearing a great deal in the mainstream media and the mainstream press about this. Um, but we are hearing about, of course, hacks. And so uh, UpGuard, which I hadn't heard of before on November 17th, talks about dark cloud inside the Pentagon's uh, leaked surveillance archive. And again, like the first one about cyber weapons, we're talking about, you know, incredible capabilities that our intelligence agencies have had and all of these being leaked, you know, and are now available for sale. So it definitely has an impact if we want to take the, the educational focus here. All of us need to be talking about security at school. All of us need to be talking about two-step two-step verification and two-step authentication. All of us need to be talking about password managers, you know, and we need to be promoting this not only for our school data and our school networks, but also um, for um, what people are doing personally. Um, the last article in this segment is Uber <laughs> actually paid a hundred thousand dollars to try as like hush money to try to keep the hackers from telling, you know, the public that, that they had, had hacked Uber and exposed 57 million people's data. Uh, and so anyway, the, the, the saga of, of Uber continues to, you know, be, uh, sort of like a, a digital soap opera. Um, and then, then the article from Vice there, I, I don't know if, if you've run into a Wi-Fi pineapple, Jason. I was at a uh, Meraki Cisco workshop about a year ago where they actually had one of these things. Um, the article is called How a Wi-Fi Pineapple Can Steal Your Data and How to Protect Yourself from It. This is a very inexpensive device that hackers have devised, and you can – it's being used legitimately by folks who do what's called penetration testing or pen testing to try and find out you know, what vulnerabilities are in your network. 
but it can also do very illegal things. And so you really don't want anyone like your students, you know, showing up with this kind of thing uh, at school and using this to do man in the middle attacks or a whole host of other other kinds of attacks. Um, but anyway, that was just sort of a few highlights from the last two weeks of security. And, um, you know, as we've said before on the show, this this has to go beyond just, you know, be scared, be very scared. Um, so, Jason, what what are your thoughts about this this barrage of uh, speed dating security articles beyond, you know, I'm still scared? <laughs> uh, well, I, the one thing I th- well, two things. First, the Uber thing is 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 sad uh, for no other reason than, you know, be be uh, be something, be little, no uh, haggard, maybe haggard Uber doesn't need another kick in the, in, in, in the, the stomach, right? So this, this may be the death Beleaguered. of that company. Beleaguered. Beleaguered is the word I'm looking for. Beleaguered Uber, uh, which sounds like a great dot com name. Beleaguered Uber dot com uh, really doesn't need another kick in the stomach here. And this may put them over the edge. And what has been interesting about the phenomenon of, of Uber in this story is that, of course, the data loss, the data hacking is bad. The cover up is 10 times worse. And so let this be a message to all companies everywhere that you're probably going to get found out, you know, be, at least be upfront. But uh, the part that's been really interesting to me is, is listening to some of the response from, and this is second, third hand news sources that say that sources inside the CIA say that now that a lot of their source code has been released, and that vulnerabilities have been patched up, they've lost a lot of their tools to be able to continue to conduct cyber surveillance on individuals that they consider to be dangerous. And it goes back to, I think, an interesting phenomenon. The same the discussions have been happening in Texas related to the, the gentleman that engaged in, in the shooting in the Texas church earlier this month who had a locked iPhone. It goes back to, you know, technology, when it's protecting our data and privacy, also protects our data from outside sources that may need that for a, a, a questionably or non-questionably use for law enforcement. And so there's a real balance here that I think is kind of hard uh, to find. And Wes is absolutely correct that these are discussions that really need to be happening inside your classrooms now. It's especially true if you are in a social studies classroom, a debate classroom, an ethics classroom, a philosophy classroom, an English classroom, no matter what you're, you're, you're talking about, if there's a debate component to it, there, there needs to be some discussions about this now because it's people under the age of 18 today they're going to really see the potentially dystopian effects of these kinds of, of, of data privacy questions. Jason, I'm think, wouldn't this, this would be a good thing for us to do. We share all these links and have this discussion. Maybe we should just make a little page off of EdTech SR writing prompts, you know, put something that was just really short. And then here's an article, have your kids discuss it because with, with some of this stuff, you know, none of us are going to be experts on this because it's, it, this stuff is happening now and it's and it's emerging but i don't think that can should stop us from from discussing these kinds of issues and it doesn't just have to be somebody you know again doing a computer science class or even doing a current events class because these are issues that are touching all you know all parts of our society so let's think about that that might be something that we could do because i i throw that out there every once in a while saying hey this is a great writing prompt but it would be uh it'd be good to maybe try to do that in a more concrete way uh and accessible way Sure. All right. What else would you like to chat about tonight? Let's um, let's do some maybe a couple of quick ones. Uh, 
First of all, happy birthday, Kindle. Uh, Kindle is 10 years old today, and I've been a Kindle user since the Gen 2. And in fact, I made sure to grab mine out of my backpack because I'm currently rocking. This is my second or third year, I think, with a Kindle Voyager, which is the uh, now not the top of the line Kindle. It's the, the second in line. They have a ridiculously thin and kind of oddly shaped one that's the top of the line one now. But uh, Kindle has been an important part of my reading diet for the last nine years, and I'm on my third Kindle now. The first one died just because I had carried it around everywhere. I probably dropped it two or three hundred times. Um, and then my second Kindle, I bought the cheapest one available and used it for a couple of years. And when the Kindle Voyager was released, I, I couldn't resist and bought a refurbished one that ended up being just perfect for me and my reading habits. But um, the thing about the Kindle that's super interesting to me is that the Kindle brought a reading revolution, which is, is I think, important, right? It led to, I think, ebooks becoming a real possibility in regards to the way books are bought and sold in the United States. But for some reason, there's been no competitor to the Kindle. Um, the iPad, you can read books on. It's certainly available. Uh, Amazon has released other devices uh, that allow you to read books with a, a, a full color screen. But I remember back to, uh, for example, tech events in 2009, 2010, where there were supposed to be hundreds of ebook readers, cheap ebook readers, $5, $10, $15 ebook readers that were going to be released to challenge the hegemony of the uh, Kindle, and it's never happened. And, and Kindle continues to sell. It's in its 10th generation now, continues to sell um, uh, uh, large numbers of devices and have been a critical uh, part of my reading diet. Um, uh, Wes, are you a Kindle ebook user? Only on the, the iOS, you know, platform. Um, my daughter kind of took over a Kindle early gen that I had. I uh, loved it so much that we did get her a paper white so that she'd be able to have the lit screen, you know, at night. Um, my friend Bob Sprinkle actually had talked to me about how much he loved it because it wasn't so distracting, right? You didn't have everything else that, that you have on, on a regular iPad, you know, or tablet. But no, sadly, I'm still, uh, you know, drowning in, in the uh, app app world of distractions and not not doing just a, a, a kindle only experience so um have you do you find that that when you're on your kindle you're able to get into flow and be less distracted and, and tempted with social media I do. And in fact, the other thing I like about a Kindle is that it's, it's just not a multitasker, right? Like you can do lots of interesting things on, on a Kindle, but it really is best when you're just pl plowing through a book. And for me, um, the other thing I really like about it is I'm able to carry, this one has 600 books uh, downloaded on it, both books that I've, I've uploaded myself to the Kindle platform and those that I purchased as part of the Amazon um, uh, Kindle Experience Store. But the bottom line is, is that like this weekend, I read a really interesting book about World War II. It was, it was a, a book published by a doctor that survived the, the Auschwitz death camp. Um, now I think about it, not the most uplifting story for Thanksgiving weekend, but a really well done, really excellent book. Um, but, you know, I needed to step away from that book uh, every once in a while because it was pretty dark and hard to read. And I have, you know, dozens of cookbooks on here. I have dozens of short story books on here. I have a lot of different science fiction readers, for example. And I really do like that I can carry all those things in a simple package that allow me to carry it anywhere. And I did put one article that was super interesting about, uh, there's two articles I put in about the Kindle birthday. The first one was how the Kindle designs changed in the last uh, 10 years. And they say 15 uh, uh, revisions to the Kindle uh, platform. I think they may be counting some very small revisions from generation to generation. But the other article 
that was super interesting was from, I think it was from CNET. Uh, it was. Uh, CNET today talked about the two biggest innovations of, of the Kindle have been first the notion of many Kindles. Not I've never owned one since my first one that does this, but uh, the Kindles that have free 3G and 2G Internet on them. So you could get books anywhere around the world instantly on your device, whether you're in Wi-Fi, uh, a connection area or not. That was an interesting innovation. It was a very novel, interesting idea in the first generation of, of Kindle that I owned. But also the notion that, that at the same time they released the Kindle, they released the Kindle, Kindle publishing program that allows you to upload a book directly to Amazon and then sell it directly to Kindle users, um, you know, setting your own price for that particular book. I know, Wes, you've published books on that platform. Um, I've, uh, uh, with student groups, published books on that platform. And I do think that's been a very democratizing um, situation. It has very much impacted the book industry as a lot of uh, authors or would-be authors have gone directly to the Kindle platform. Sometimes that's been a positive thing, uh, publishing books who have otherwise never found an audience. Uh, otherwise, sometimes it's not a positive thing. Many authors that have great stories could have used the benefit of like an editor for example, but I do think this direct-to-consumer, direct-to-reader process has been very disruptive in, in a largely positive way in the publishing industry. Absolutely. makes Yeah, and uh, I'm, ho- I'm hopeful in, in 2018 to, uh, to publish again on, on multiple fronts. In fact, uh, my wife and I, I think, are going to co-lead a after school, she, she did uh, an after school class on uh, PBS Scratch Junior, which was really well received. This was for, I think it's what, second grade, second grade through uh, fourth grade. But uh, we're going to do one on Hopscotch. And that was a, a book that I had uh, put out free. And it's actually interesting when you want to do something free on Amazon. I won't go into depth about that, but you know, they really want you to, to be selling it for something. So right. yeah, uh, it, it's, it's so a they, risk. So they can take a cut. Well, of course, right. I mean, they're yes. they're about profitability. So, anyway, uh, yeah, that's uh, it. It's it's phenomenal, and I may explore a little bit with that. I don't know. I may be able to either wrestle uh, Rachel's uh, paper white from her a little bit over the holiday, or or else get our older, you know, Kindle because that's one of the things, right? An older Kindle. I mean, yep. it still works, right? So, yep. not like. Um, you know, need to need to chuck it out. The the text is no. I mean, as long as the as the battery's there and everything else. Uh, which uh, version of a Kindle, Jason? Did you say you had? Peggy's asking. This is the. This is the. I think it's Voyage or Voyager. Maybe it's Voyage. It's the Kindle Voyage, and so it has a high resolution screen, and then it has the backlighting on it, which I also find to be quite positive. The other thing I like about the Kindle, too, speaking of the backlighting, is that I feel like it's less disruptive to sleep patterns when I'm reading this for an hour before bed, as opposed to playing with my phone. And it still is a a book, so long form fiction or nonfiction, as opposed to the kind of fast foody articles that I would tend to read. Um, on my device. And so I think that is also a benefit to me as well. Not to mention, this thing has taken a beating like a champ. Like, I, I do buy a case for everything I own because I'm an epic klutz. But the thing about that is, is that this thing has been dropped numerous times. And this is the nicer one with a, you know, it's not even a plastic screen. It's a nice glass screen to help facilitate uh, the touch component to it. And it it's taken beatings like a champ. Well, I'd like to jump into a group of articles that I put under the title of social media, and there's actually probably a record 10 articles underneath there, so there's no way that we're going to be getting through all of these. Um, but, you know, a lot of these are talking about Facebook, data, um, the inability of, of companies like Google and Facebook to regulate themselves. You know, so we've got The Guardian, November 19th, how – 
how an educated tech elite delivered us into chaos. I mean, this is an article basically saying that, um, you know, Zuckerberg and others were just very, very naive about the ways in which data would be used and how they could, you know, create these platforms and, you know, how it would have been nice if they'd had more balanced educations. That, that was, that, that's an editorial, you know, kind of saying, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if we had been able to foresee these a little bit more? Um, one that I was just, that kind of blew my mind, and I'll just stop after I share this one, Jason, rather than trying to rattle through more, but, uh, Note to Self's podcast, November 21st, uh, is titled The Lawsuit That Could Shine a Light on Cambridge Analytica. Um, again, this is talking about data and putting together the pieces. Uh, we've talked about Cambridge Analytica previously on the show. Uh, some folks really think that this company, you know, uh, you know, largely, uh, sponsored and, and, uh, bankrolled by, by hedge fund folks, um, and really, really conservative voices is a big reason why Brexit, you know, passed in the UK and, and why Donald Trump was elected in the United States. That's, there was a 60 minutes a few weeks ago that really kind of debunked that. But anyway, what they're talking about in this article that was most interesting is this idea of instead of talking about privacy, talking about data protection and the rights that we have to our data and the need that we have in society for us to recognize the power of, of companies who control that kind of data to connect the dots about our lives. Um, one of those articles uh, let's see. This is the one that talks about them connecting all the dots. Um, you know, I'm not finding that article right now, but anyway, have you listened to that note to self Jason or, um, I listened to the first 10 minutes of it before my, my uh, right ended today. But I do think that, that, that there it's, it's interesting because this is some of the more in-depth journalism going on, on this particular issue, right? Like I'm surprised that more of the kind of larger, uh, natural newspapers, the Washington Post, the New York Times, maybe even some of the more lean conservative newspapers like the Wall Street Journal haven't jumped in on this because of the extraordinary implications of our democracy. But um, I have not heard or seen yet the steps you need to go through to get your data um, from the Cambridge Analytica firm. But assuming it's not an extraordinary expense, I'm going to go through it myself. Yeah, I will, too. It's in that article. And so it's through it's through England because the parent company of Cambridge Analytica is actually headquartered in the UK. And so their data protection laws are applicable. And so under EU, well, for now, as well as UK law, you know, you can apply to to uh, be able to see those. And actually, the article that I was thinking about is number two in this list. It's the Gizmodo from November 7th, how Facebook figures out everyone you've ever met, you know, and it's what's it called a shadow profile. Facebook doesn't like that term, but <clears throat> I guess there was some kind of a glitch at one point where a person was actually able to download not only the profile that they had publicly shared with Facebook, but also the shadow profile, which showed all the connections, you know, because anybody who has your phone number, has your your uh, email address, you know, is able to connect the dots. And so it really it is it's kind of mind blowing the ways in which these companies have been able to to collect these vast troves of data and, and of course are profiting from them. Uh, and then the implications when, when advertisers as well as governments and others that want to affect uh, things that are happening in your life, maybe that's just selling you products, but it also might be, you know, affecting the outcome of a political election or some kind of a, of a vote. 
um, you know, what, what they can, what they can do with those things. So I do commend that note to self podcast from November 21st. We've got that linked and it does include the steps that you can take to request your data file from Cambridge Analytica. And on that note, there's a CNET article from November the 22nd. Facebook will identify what Russian linked content you liked and also Ars Technica on November 22nd. By year's end, you'll know if you liked a Kremlin-created Facebook page. And these are all, you know, both uh, citing the same Facebook announcement that they're going to be having a tool where you're going to be able to see, you know, what kinds of things did you did you like or did you pass on. And it it really uh, – this, this more than probably anything that we've had happen in our history, I think, elevates the need for – critical thinking, validating web content, recognizing that we're all publishers yeah. now, and really talking. I mean, this is vital for citizenship, right? This isn't an outlier yeah. thing like, hey, just a few of your kids who might run for office need to talk about this or whatever. No, everybody needs to be attuned to this. And it's not just the well, – because I've had this happen with, with relatives and things, you know, where something kind of ludicrous gets forwarded on. I'm like, did you even Google that and look that up in Snopes? And and we've talked about this on the show. The research shows, you know, confronting people with that, that kind of evidence doesn't always, you know, change their minds. But it's this is so mainstream, like this really should change curriculum. You know, I mean, like we should really be talking about this in, in all of our schools. And it shouldn't just be a, you know, possible optional thing that some people happen to discuss um, because their teacher's passionate about it and knowledgeable about it. Right. Um, and then, by the way, 10 pounds to get your file from Cambridge Analytica. There's an email template they link to the allows to do that. And they're citing that apparently some people have up to, I think it's 500 potential data points. Um, do I have that number correctly? It's 500 or maybe it's more, but uh, on uh, up to 500 data points on each voter in the United States. And if you think about that for a second, it's an interesting mind exercise, 500 data points, um, uh, if you have up to 500 data points, it doesn't take many data points before you start to get into some extremely personal information they may have gleaned from a number of, 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 of sources, either Internet, OpenWise, or maybe commercial databases that it pulls from. And it is an interesting thought exercise to think about what that might be holding on you. So I'm going to read through this a little more carefully, and I'm going to do it. I want to find out what Cambridge Analytica knows about me. It's not hard to find out information about me, even on my Facebook profile, though I keep it fairly locked down, shows a lot of things that if you want to know my political views, it's not hard to find that out. If you want to see, um, you know, where I voted, that's a public, or when I voted, that's a public record, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I do think it's an interesting thought exercise to go through and find out if it's collecting these data pieces and claims that can help sway elections, what those data pieces actually are. You know, on that note, I'll say personally, I, I wrote a post as far as things I learned when I went to Egypt. Um, one of the most important, like, I, I actually, <laughs> you know, probably was not probably I was worried more about, you know, customs and, you know, smartphone data. and Are they going to suck everything off? You know, that I even was finalizing some of my presentations and stuff the night before I left, which is a little a little bit silly, perhaps. But. You know, what it made me think about and really make some decisions about is, you know, what kinds of data that, that's on my smartphone would I really prefer a customs official and, and, a, and, a, and a national government not to have in their database? And so I ended up, um, you know, deciding that my whole list of contacts, you know, which I have like 3,000, I think, in, in my, uh, my address book, um, 
you know, I probably didn't want that and all of the email that I'd ever sent and had archived. Uh, so, but I also didn't want to wipe my phone. You know, some of the articles that I've read said, you know, that's kind of a flag, right? If you're walking through number one without a smartphone, as you've ditched it, you know, it's really a burner phone that you, that you tossed and got rid of. Or, you know, if you've, if you've erased it. So it was handy that one password, which is a great password manager, has a travel mode where you can specify, you know, a separate vault and it'll actually delete those other vaults that might have banking and financial information and other kinds of things that you just, you know, you don't need to travel with and don't want to be, you know, copied into some national database. And then also, uh, I ended up having two Google accounts and I, you know, just deleted, uh, my primary one. I didn't end up, in fact, when I went through customs in Egypt, uh, was really kind of treated like a diplomat by the folks from the hotel that, yeah, somehow I guess they had maybe paid for, for the service, but there were folks that met us before the passport line. And literally I paid 25 bucks for my tourist visa and they just went through, they did not even look at my passport. They just, they just stamped the visa, you know, went through. <clears throat> it was actually more exiting the country that there was a little bit more scrutiny. And I was more concerned about this reentering the United States than I was, you know, even, even being there in Egypt. So, um, it's a uh, it's important stuff to be thinking about, and there's another article that was in that uh, series of of links, and there were a bunch of art of uh, different uh, tech journals and, and and shows that talked about this. Um, Wired, November 16th. You're browsing a website. These companies may be recording your every move, and so there are these session recordings that. But different websites have services. I think there's like four or five different companies that are that are cited. And so what they're doing for companies is helping them better understand the pattern of behavior of folks who visit their website and you know where they not only where they click but everything that they type. And so we we definitely are living in a day where there is far more recording going on in terms of our digital footprint. And of course, I continue to maintain and even said this in some, you know, my presentations in Egypt, there's so much good in sharing. And so our awareness of this surveillance level use of data shouldn't chill all of our desire to, you know, be generously sharing. But I'm, I'm like you, Jason, I think in terms of my profiles, like it really doesn't matter if folks log into my Twitter or my Facebook. I mean, I've got those publicly shared. I'm thinking now, perhaps maybe about going into Facebook and making some some changes because there's a at one point I was kind of treating them the same and so I have all kinds of folks that are quote Facebook friends you know that I have no idea who they are and I'm using that a lot more for just personal stuff than I am you know for professional sharing um, so these are healthy conversations to have and 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 to think about um, because there's not a single answer and certainly the it's good for us to have our eyes open to the ways that our data is being utilized. And I do think that there's a, a reckoning day coming for companies where we're going to need, we're going to need to talk more about data protection in the United States as they already are in Europe. And so anyway, I think that some of these continued revelations are going to, are going to push, push that point, hopefully to cause action on the behalf of regulators and legislators, maybe, but who knows, sure. perhaps not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, well, Wes, why don't we jump into our Geeks of the Week, and then we can, we've can we got some great articles that we can push towards next week. So why don't you start us off? All right. Well, my Geek of the Week is WhatsApp, and I don't think we've had this one before. Um, WhatsApp uh, it has been purchased by Facebook, and it is a fully encrypted messaging app. And so you can use this for text messaging, 
phone calls and you can also use it for video chat. And when I was in Egypt, this was the, the app. In fact, in Paris as well, we, I was just in the airport, but as I mentioned, T-Mobile had, you know, completely free data um, in both countries. And so I was amazed by it. And a friend who I was able to, a uh, family friend who I was able to get together with uh, on two different occasions, spend a lot of time with, I mean, that is what he uses a hundred percent of the time, you know, versus regular text messaging, which is subject to interception or and things like that. Again, it's not like I'm doing illegal things. I'm not doing anything illegal, but privacy is important. And so being able to use an end-to-end encrypted app for messaging is is really important. And, and being able to, you know, talk pretty much just like we were calling on the regular phone system in the United States, but yet I'm on the other side of the planet and I'm talking, you know, through a fully encrypted app, um, you know, to my wife and family was, was pretty amazing. So I don't think if I would have really realized that if I hadn't made this trip. And so you might take a look at it and, and consider uh, whether or not it's something that you want to use. I don't know to the degree to which I'll be using it on a regular basis. But again, that encryption thing, you know, it's something that we should think about and uh, consider. And th- there's probably a greater need for us to be aware of 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 issues there than, uh, I don't know, a lot of folks are probably just not even concerned about and think about it. So it's free and it's cross-platform. <clears throat> Works great. Android, iOS, you know, whatever you got. There you go. And I'd like to share this week FixBot, FixBot.com. Um, and it is a site that allows you to paste in a link to a number of different websites that have reviews. It includes Yelp and Amazon, and it rates the quality of the reviews of particular locations or products based on whether or not they are fake reviews. And it has a standard for what a fake review is, uh, reviewers that tend to be always positive or use the same kind of phrasing or utilize phrases, which are oftentimes associated with fake reviewers. It's one of the ways that I determine whether or not an Amazon product that I'm choosing to buy is real or not. And where that has been especially important to me is that now that more and more of my devices are USB-C, which means I have to utilize um, or I can utilize new smaller charger blocks. Here's the USB-C charger that I use for my my Chromebook now that has USB-C. It came with a big charger that's an OEM charger. But this is an anchor charger box that was really a third of the price of what a, an OEM uh, USB-C uh, charging block would be, not to mention it's a lot svelter. Um, USB-C is a great example of something that products get put on Amazon that don't meet USB-C regulations and then are dangerous to your or products. And so what this allows me to do is check for reviews to see whether or not that the reviews are likely legitimate or likely not. And in fact, the other day I was purchasing a cable um, for a special project that I'm working on at home. And um, there was a, a cable that was substantially cheaper than the others that had really high reviews. And so I put it through fakespot.com and 96% of the reviews were identified as being likely fake because the reviewers were associated with other fake reviews. And so it's always good to bring a bit of consumer cynicism to your shop experience online and think of spot.com allows you to do so. Awesome. Well, that is great. Well, we want to thank Peggy George for joining us. And as Peggy has noted in the chat, there are a ton of links that we are not having time to talk about tonight. So uh, we will uh, advance some of those to talk about next week. And uh, Jason, where can folks find you besides here on the EdTech Situation Room to learn from you? 
My main social media professionally is Twitter. I'm at Tech Savvy Teach, and I also blog at the uh, NCCE Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncce.org. And in the next few weeks, we'll be releasing our 2017 Christmas picks, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about on here as well, geeky things to buy for your friends and family. And also, I'm working on an article about what to look for in um, a Tech Savvy principal. So something that you can be looking up to on the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog. Wes, what about you? Awesome. Well, I am blogging periodically on speedofcreativity.org. I've actually published two podcasts there, which is kind of uh, rare these these days. Uh, uh, one was from Egypt and one from the uh, conference that we had. It was a Google-focused conference. We called it G, G – what was it called? G Camp, uh, OKC, and I got to uh, actually share a session about uh, teaching and learning in an AI-only world. So those are a couple things to check out, and I am W. Fryer on Twitter. So – as we said, we encourage you to check out our links on edtechsr.com slash links. We will be back here at our regular day and time, which will be Wednesday evening, 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. And until next time, we challenge you to stay savvy and stay safe and uh, share feedback because, yes, we live in this day of still the open web when we can publish and share and would love to hear from you and any ideas or feedback that you might have on the show or topics we should talk about. We'd love to interact with our listeners. So thanks for tuning in. Please continue to share EdTech SR with all those you know and love. Thanks.